0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you for coming this afternoon. My name is Paula Varsano, and I'm a professor of East Asian Languages and Cultures and the chair of the the Forster Lectures Committee. We, along with the Graduate Council, are very, very happy to present V.S. Ramachandran, this year's speaker in the Forster, Forster Lecture Series. I'm also very pleased to tell you a bit about how the endowment supporting the Forster Lectures on the Immortality of the Soul came to UC Berkeley. It's actually a story that really exemplifies the ways in which this campus is linked to the history of California and, in particular, to the Bay Area. In 1928, Miss Edith Zweibruck Established the Forster Lectureship to honor the memory of Agnes A. Forster and her husband, Constantine E. Forster. Edith was a public school teacher for many years in San Francisco, and the teaching profession in her eyes was the perfect opportunity to develop a true knowledge and love of the spiritual values of life in the young minds entrusted to her care. Edith's beloved sister, Agnes A. Forster, shared her high ideals and her hopes, as did Agnes's husband, Constantine, a lawyer by professor by profession. I'm a lawyer by profession. He was a man of high intellectual achievement and of rare personal charm. Although he passed away at the age of 37, he had achieved an enviable place in, at the San Francisco Bar as one of its most highly respected members. For several years prior to his death, Forster was a law partner of none other than Alexander F. Morrison, one of the most prominent of San Francisco eternity, attorneys for whom our Morrison Memorial Library is named. In her last days, Miss Edith Zweibroch expressed her deep and abiding interest in the spiritual life by creating this lecture series on the subject of the immortality of the soul. She believed that through the medium of great universities and the words of scholarly lecturers, she might shed new light upon a subject that has interested the world for centuries. So we have to thank Edith Zweibroch. And now about our lecturer... Sometimes the best way to characterize a person is to consider what kinds of questions he or she likes to ask. And here's a question that is always being asked in various ways by our speaker. And I quote him here. How can a three-pound mass of jelly that you can hold in the palm of your hand imagine angels, contemplate the meaning of infinity, and even question its own place in the cosmos? Now, what kind of person can ask this question in a way that doesn't sound rhetorical? Poets can do that, and Dr. V.S. Ramachandran is indeed a poet of sorts. Officially, however, he serves as the director of the Center for Brain and Cognition and is a distinguished professor at the University of California, San Diego, as well as an adjunct professor of biology at the Salk Institute. He has also been called the Marco Polo of Neuroscience by Richard Dawkins and the Modern Paul Broca by Eric Kandel. But as pithily impressive as these titles and these epithets may be, they actually do very, very little to reveal the mind-teasing pathway he has followed and on which he leads us in the work that he does and in the contributions that he makes. Dr. Ramachandran is renowned for his ongoing inquiry into the field of cognitive neuroscience, that is, the intersection of neurology and perceptual psychology. To steal a few words from the title of one of his books, he is actually a neuroscientist on a quest for what makes us human. Building on his early work on visual perception, Ramachandran has led pioneering experiments in behavioral neurology, taking cues from malfunctions in perception, including phantom limbs, synesthesia, and xenomelia, to delve into the unique ways in which the human brain forms and deforms the workings of mind. Laypeople are perhaps most familiar with his controversial assertion of mirror neurons as playing a central role in the unique evolution of humans. His approach to neurology has been to revisit classic syndromes, bring them to the lab, determine their broader significance, and devise new treatments where possible. Of course, Ramachandran, many of you know, is a very prolific author, and he's published over 180 papers in scientific journals, five of which were, um, were invited review articles for Scientific American. He's the co-author with Sandra Blakeslee of Phantoms in the Brain, 1999, which has been translated into nine languages and formed the basis for a PBS special. His BBC Reith lectures were published in 2003 in a volume titled The Emerging Mind and were dubbed by the Nobel laureate David Hubel as bold, irreverent, original, and ingenious. His latest book, a New York Times bestseller, is The Telltale Brain. After training as a physician in Stanley Medical College in Madras, India, Ramachandran obtained a PhD from Trinity College and the University of Cambridge. He's an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Physicians London and the recipient of two honorary doctorates. Ramachandran has received many accolades throughout his career. He was awarded the Henry Dale Medal in 2005 and was elected to an honorary life membership to the Royal Institution of Great Britain. The President of India conferred on him the highest uh, honorific title in India, Padma Bhushan, in 2007. And besides the BBC Wreath Lectures he delivered in the UK, he also gave the Gifford Lectures in Scotland. Time magazine named him one of the most influential people in the world in their 2011 Time 100. Finally, before I cede the stage to Dr. Ramachandran, I would like to leave you with a few words by Ted Kuser, U.S. Poet Laureate from 2004 to 2006, who also asks, what makes us human? He words it differently, though, and much more mournfully than our speaker does. Here we will not find the mind's brain imagining angels or contemplating the meaning of infinity. In the closing lines of Couser's poem, In the Hall of Bones, after cataloging the array of skeletons that he found in what seems to be a natural history museum, he writes these words. And then here's man, all matchsticks, wooden spoons, and tongue depressors wired together, a rack supporting a leaky jug of lust and worry. Of all the skeletons assembled here, this is the only one in which once throbbed a heart made sad by brooding on its shadow. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ramachandran to Berkeley.
2: Well, thank you for that amazing introduction. I'm delighted to be here and honored to be invited by the committee to give this lecture, foster lecture. And when the committee first phoned me up about this and said how to talk about the soul, immortality of the soul, I said, well, that's easy. I'd be happy to do it. (laughs) And then I did a double take, and I realized what I was getting into. But then, fortunately, they reassured me that, in fact, it doesn't have to be anything directly related to the soul, but so long as it's tangentially relevant, which means essentially all phenomena in the universe. So I'm going to approach the problem of soul, not so much the soul, but the self. It's, after all, the immortality of the self that we're all concerned about. We call it the soul. And I'm going to use two approaches, mainly one approach. But I'm not, I'm not going to deal with the metaphysical question of soul, which is extensively dealt with in Indian philosophy and in Western philosophy as well. But if you sort of pause and introspect on the self, there are many attributes. It's kind of common sense. but. Roughly speaking, this embodiment. One of the most obvious aspects of the self is it's you're anchored in one body. I'm not anchored in Charlie's body. I'm right here, but we'll call that into question in a minute. Then there's a sense of continuity in space and time. We all have a calendar. A sense of agency, sometimes called free will. A sense of unity and coherence, despite a diverse diversity of sense impressions and memories over a lifetime. You feel like one person. I'm one guy. One one name. One bank account. One spouse so on and so forth, in the sense of privacy and individuality. And then finally, most mysterious of all, self-awareness. Self that is not aware of itself is almost like an oxymoron. So there's curious recursive quality to it, which is hard to come to grips with. I'm not going to talk about all these attributes of self. It'll take a whole week. But let's talk about embodiment and partly about privacy and from the point of view of cognitive neuroscience and neurology. And the way we deal with this, the way we study this, is by um, looking at patients. We can do brain imaging. It's one thing we do. But mainly, we do behavioral, old-fashioned 19th century behavioral neurology, and look at patients who have sustained an injury or a change in a small part of the brain, and then producing characteristic changes in their behavior, and trying to correlate structure and function, trying to explain the changes in behavior in terms of the anatomical organization of the normal human brain. This gives you some insight into, into the question of what, what's mediating that particular function. So let me begin with a bang and talk about a syndrome which people, few people even heard of. It's called xenomelia. Xenomelia is the name we gave it, but it's also known as apochromnophilia, unpronounceable name, apochromnophilia. This refers to patients. I'll mention one example, striking example, of a dean of an engineering school who came to see me at the age of 70. He just retired. He was 70 years old. And he had harbored, his entire, through his entire life, he had harbored a secret urge, as he described it, to amputate his own healthy arm, going back as far back in childhood as he can remember. He's a perfectly normal guy in every respect, not obviously psychotic or depressed or mentally disturbed, no neurological findings, completely normal, led a normal family life, had friends, had a job, was a dean. Everything seemed normal, except for this one peculiarity that he had this urge. And by the way, then I discovered that many of these people, it's not, just, it's not that rare. It is rare, but it's not that rare. And about one-third of them to half of them go and get it amputated. So it's not some mild obsession which these people have. It has three serious clinical consequences, the loss of a limb. So then I said, why do you come to see me? Do you want, it, do you want, want us to treat you or cure you? He said, no, I enjoy it. I don't want it to be cured. I want you to remove the arm. Give me a letter so I can go get it removed. And I can't do it here in this country and go to Mexico across the border, it's illegal to get a healthy limb amputated. I'm not making this up, is what he said. Later I checked on this, and it's true, you can get it amputated in, in Mexico and in Canada, but you can't do it here. So many people, many patients travel north or south to get it amputated. And what would cause this? The first thing I asked him was, one of the things you learn in clinical medicine is first talk to the guy. You know, 90% of the time you can figure out what's going on in his, in his brain by just talking to him. You don't need to do brain imaging, you don't need to do even clinical testing. I said, what's going on? Do you feel like this arm doesn't belong to you? He said, no. No, no, it's the opposite. It feels like it over-belongs to me. It's intrusive. It's intruding itself on me. And I want it removed. Right? And I said, okay. And I started thinking about this, and I said, well, maybe what's gone wrong is, if you look at the surface of the brain, that's the somatosensory cortex, or S1. This is got the Penfield map of the body surface. The entire surface of the body, body skin surface, is mapped onto the Post-central, there's a vertical cleft going down the side of the brain called the central sulcus. Behind that cleft, there's a vertical strip of cortex. It's shown in brown there. So that would be the left hemisphere. If you want to touch my right side, it goes to the post-central gyrus in my left hemisphere. There's a complete map of the body surface on that post-central gyrus there. That map is shown in the next slide. And many of you may have seen this before. I've got some peculiar features which I'll come back to. But I said, well, maybe in this guy, you it's know, a very naive phrenological hunch, Maybe in this guy, that part of the brain is missing. The hand is not there. We don't know how much of this map is present, the scaffolding is present at birth, and how much of it is shaped by experience. And I'm going to talk about that in about, in a few minutes. But for now, let's assume it's hardwired partly. Maybe maybe it's congenitally missing the arm. And therefore, he feels it's alien, it's alien or it doesn't belong to him. So we did the obvious experiment of galvanic skin response, poked him with a needle gently at different parts of the body, and obtain electrical skin conductance responses. And we thought we'd find no responses. So one of the things that clued us in to this as being a neurological rather than a psychological disorder, if you ask him where do you want it amputated, he'll take a felt pen and he'll draw an exact line just above the elbow or below the elbow or just above the hand. Very precise line, often an irregular line, sloping line. And then you let him go home. Don't tell him you're going to retest him, but bring him back after six months. He'll draw exactly the same line. Unless he's being deliberately deceptive gone and memorized it. It's very unlikely he's doing this. So this suggests that, why would the precise line matter? If it's some vague inclination to hear the arm removed, why would the precise line matter? In fact, there are many psychological theories of this. One psychiatric theory holds that it's a cry for attention. That's why they want their arm removed. But why arm? Why not remove the nose or the ear or something like that? Why, why, why the arm always, or the leg, right? It seems pretty drastic way of getting attention. Another theory, believe it or not, the Freudian theory. If the guy wants his arm removed in order to create an amputation stump that resembles a giant penis. (laughs) I'm not making this up. You can see this in the literature. (laughs) So we thought we'd come up with a neurological, phrenological theory of what's going on. But then we drew the line of the felt tip, poked him with a needle on different parts of the body to see if the galvanic skin response was normal below the line as opposed to above the line. We expected diminished galvanic skin response below the line, because that part of the arm is not represented in the brain according to our theory. Well, we found the opposite, as often happens in science. We found below the line there's a huge galvanic skin response. Above the line is perfectly normal, as you would expect. Is that clear? OK, if you poke somebody with a needle, the message goes to, the, to S1, of course, and S2, the somatic representation of the body, but also goes to an area called the insular cortex. And from there, it gets sent to the anterior cingulate. And from then, messages cascade down the sympathetic nervous system, producing sympathetic arousal to the pain. And then this manifests as a change in sweating of the skin, which in turn can be measured as a change in skin resistance. You put two electrodes in the palm. When I scare you with a needle or scare you with a lion, you start sweating. And this registers as a fall in the skin resistance. It's the basis of light detecting tests. Any anxiety, any panic would register this. So clearly, he was registering a higher response to the alienated part of the limb than to the part the normal part, it's the opposite of what we predicted. But hang on a second. So we said, well, basic early theory was wrong. So what's going on here? So then we resorted to brain imaging. I don't have any pictures to show you, but basically what we found was this map was normal and that's when the one I just showed you, S1 map is normal. S2, which represents joints, muscles, and uh, light touch, that was also normal. So we said, what, what's going on here? Everything's normal. Then we went to the superior parietal lobule, SPL, where there were four is. Superior parietal lobule is where you create a polysensory representation of your body image. You close your eyes, you get a vivid impression of your own body, inhabiting your own body, your movements of your arms and legs and all that. And that sense what we call body image by Henry Head and Lord Russell Brain, two real neurologists, by the way, uh, who called this the body image. and that, combined sensations from hearing, touch, and vision is in the superior parietal lobule. In that map, there is no response from the missing from the hand. So that map was abnormal. There is no, a hole, to put it crudely, corresponding to the, to the hand he wanted amputated. So what's going on in this patient is, the messages from the hand and arm are reaching the somatosensory cortex completely normal. So the messages, the sensory signals are normal, sensory cortex is normal, S2 is normal. But they have nowhere to go to, because there's a hole in that region of the brain. So this creates an abhorrence, a discrepancy between the incoming sensory input and no place for them to go to. And the brain abhors discrepancy. That signal goes to the insula and possibly the amygdala, generating a galvanic skin response. Saying "eh," right? So here we have an example of we've taken the Freudian theory and discarded it for, by and large it may not be completely wrong, and then replaced it with an anatomical theory. Which we can test in a, in a few hours using a GSR machine, and then do more uh, sophisticated brain imaging, and show that we're on the right track. This, is, this shows the power of this approach, cognitive neuroscience, where you can take a bizarre, seemingly incomprehensible neurological disorder—a person wanting his arm removed—and reject the traditional explanation in favor of an uh, anatomical explanation based on the known neuroanatomy of the, of the, the, the sensory pathways in the brain. Now. Can you cure the disorder? We haven't found a way of treating it yet. In fact, they don't want to be cured, as I said before. Um, But the next topic I'm going to deal with, so this is typical of what we do. We take syndromes that have been known for a long time, either rare ones or common ones, like synesthesia is very common. I'm going to talk about that later today. Phantom limbs are quite common. I'll talk about that as well, or rare ones. And bring them from the clinic to the laboratory, and then do systematic experiments to find out what's going on. And sometimes you're actually able to help the patient. Now, this a strategy doesn't always work, looking for anomalies. Because every now and then, you only hear of the success stories. Nine out of 10 times it's the wild goose chase. Anomalies in neurology. Neurology and psychiatry are full of anomalous syndromes. Nine out of 10 times the wild goose chase. You only hear of the success stories. I'll give you three examples of wild goose chases, very briefly. There's a syndrome called uh, Duclerimbolt syndrome. How many of you know about Duclerimbolt syndrome? Nobody, see? No, pretty obscure. <laughs> Even most you know, psychiatrists haven't heard of it. It refers to, uh, the syndrome is defined as, it's accepted in psychiatry textbooks. A young woman, typically a young woman, who develops the delusion that an old, rich, famous man is madly in love with her, but is in denial about it. <laughs> now, funnily enough, the converse of the syndrome has not been described. where a, an older gentleman develops a delusion that a young hottie is, in, is sexually interested in him, but is in denial about it. This is much more common, I can assure you. <laughs> Another bogus syndrome is chronic underachievement syndrome. It's actually found in textbooks. Chronic underachievement syndrome. In my day, it used to be called stupidity. <laughs> the third syndrome, my favorite, is oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. Now, this is a young, spirited youngster daring to challenge the establishment, challenge the diagnosis of the psychiatrist, challenge the parent. Right? The man who invented the syndrome is a genius because any attempt to, by the patient to disprove the syndrome, to protect the syndrome, can be construed as additional evidence for the diagnosis.
0: <laughs>
2: so anyway, leaving that aside, every now and then you stumble on legitimate syndromes we give you key insights. So, for example, epitomemophilia. Now I'm going to talk about something else. This you've heard before, many of you, but I'm going to repeat just the gist of it. Phantom limbs. An arm or leg is amputated. You continue to feel its vivid presence and it's called a phantom limb. Some years ago, nearly 15 years ago, we had a patient with a left arm amputated, and we made a specific prediction based on work on monkeys done by Mike Merzenich and others. So nobody had tested it on humans. So we had a patient sitting in my lab whose left arm had been amputated, We blindfolded him, and simply took a Q-tip and touched different parts of his body, and asked him, what do you feel? He said, it's my right shoulder, it's my chest. So here's a patient sitting in the chair, blindfolded, took a Q-tip, touched different parts of his body, did a routine sensory neurological exam, What's that? That's a Q-tip, where you touching right, right chest. That's my right shoulder, my left shoulder, left upper arm. Oh my god, you're touching my left phantom thumb. That's my phantom pinky. That's my phantom index finger. And we found there's a complete map of the f- missing arm on the face, and you can actually plot receptor fields. Right? You can plot receptor fields, like the thumb is there ball of the thumb, index finger, pinky. And you can send him home, bring him back after a month, and it's exactly the same. And there's no way you could have memorized that. And why is this going on, happening? Well, we can do a bit of detective work. Go back to the Penfield map. Notice that the map is completely, as a map should be, continuous, except for one fact. The face is not near the head where it's supposed to be, near the neck. It's below the hand. Is that clear? Right? So we said, what's going on is when you amputate the arm, the sensory signals don't get to the hand area in the brain. Signals from the face skin, which normally go only to the face area, invade and cross innervate the territory vacated by the missing hand. Right? So this is cross-wiring. You remove the arm and the hand. There are no signals coming from to this region of the brain, the hand region. So that region is hungry for new sensory input. So The sensory input coming from the face skin to the face area invades the territory corresponding to the missing hand, activates those cells. And those cells then misinterpret the signal that's coming from the missing phantom hand. So when you touch the face, he thinks you're touching his hand. So you can have fun with this. We took a Q-tip and put it in ice cold water, put it on his face. And he said, oh my god, my thumb feels ice cold, doctor. So the reorganization is modality specific. It's not higgledy-piggledy. Touch goes to touch, warmth goes to warmth, cold goes to cold. On one occasion, the water started trickling down his face accidentally. And he said, oh my god, I can feel the trickle of the water. And he took his other, uh, normal hand and followed the trickle. It's coming down here, it's coming down here. Ah, uh, It stops here at the wrist where the, where the water stopped. So it's exquisitely precise, the reorganization. So just for fun, I said, raise your stump and point to the ceiling. So the phantom is pointing to the ceiling upward. Then I put the water here, started trickling down. I said, what do you feel? And he said, oh my god, the water is trickling upwards, defying the laws of gravity. And you, know, you listen to patients often enough, you, see, you realize that they don't make up stories like that. Okay. All right. I can continue along these. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip a lot of stuff. You can do brain imaging and show that the reorganization has indeed occurred. Now, the other interesting thing about phantom limbs is you, patients can often move the phantom. Majority of patients can move the phantom. But about a third of them, the phantom is fixed or immobilized and often in a painful position. The patient will say, will mimic the phantom position with his normal hand. He'll say it's like this, doctor. It's like occupying. It's like this. My hand is extending, hyperextending, so the knuckles are touching the back of my wrist. It's anatomically impossible, but my hand is doing it, and it's like you know that that movie. What is the movie? Where the head spins around. So it's, yeah. So it's anatomically impossible, and it's excruciatingly painful. I wish I could straighten my wrist, and the pain will go away. So why don't you try? So, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm sweating. I can't do it. Then I hit on the idea, long, I'm going to cut a long story short. You hit on, hit on the idea of putting a mirror there and showing him the reflection of the mirror. We can go into details in the, during question and answer later. Uh, put a mirror inside a cardboard box, and the phantom is a clenched phantom. Often he'll say the, the fingers are biting into the, the nails are biting into the palm, doctor, and it's excruciatingly painful. There's no nail, there's no palm, there's no hand. It's a phantom, right? in the serious clinical problem, they become profoundly depressed, lose their jobs. On occasion, they contemplate suicide. So you put a mirror there, and you have the patient clench the normal hand and look at the reflection of the normal hand in the mirror so that the reflection of the normal hand is superimposed optically on the phantom hand, so you visually resurrected the phantom. And then you say, okay, send symmetrical commands to both hands to open or close. So I, you know, I know you're telling me that I can't do that. My left hand will not open. I said, just, 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 Take a look in the mirror and see. Say, oh my God, it looks like it's opening, and my God, it also feels like it's opening. It doesn't merely look like it's opening, which is not surprising; it's optics. But it feels like it's opening, and the clenching spasm is removed. It's gone. The pain is gone. And then I said, remove the mirror. Remove the mirror. And Then try with your eyes closed. Imagine it. No, it doesn't work. I keep trying. That it doesn't work. Put the mirror in there. Wow, it's opening. It's opening. It feels good, right? So I said, well, maybe we use it. You can't carry it on a mirror all the time. Maybe you can you get to a point where you can you practice with the mirror one hour a day, and after about a week or two or a month, you can dispense with the mirror. You can just move it on its own. You can just un- unclench it whenever he wants to. So I sent him home with a box, only $2. Send him home with the box. And then after two weeks, I phoned him up, and I said, have you been practicing? He said, yes, I've been practicing. When I keep my eyes open, the pain gets relieved for about an hour, and then it comes back with a vengeance. And I had to put the mirror back, and then it goes back again. So I had to keep, keep doing refills. I know, I know you wanted to go away permanently, but it doesn't. I said, fine, c'est la vie, you know. Then after a week, he phones me, and he's all agitated on the phone. I said, what's wrong, Derek? He said, oh, no, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? It's gone, he says. I said, what's gone? I thought maybe the box is gone. <laughs> he said, no, 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 not the box. The phantom limb, which I've had for the last 13 years, that phantom limb is gone. It's disappeared. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's gone. And I said, when? Like three days ago. I've been trying to reach you. And I was a bit worried about this because of human subjects and ethics, because I permanently modified this guy's body image, if what he's saying is true. Then I said, well, does it bother you? He said, no, and the pains I had in my phantom elbow and my phantom wrist and my phantom fingers, I've never had those pains in the last three days because I don't have a phantom. Right? We can go into the question of why this happens later, but clinically, this has been tried in several clinical trials, one in New England Journal of Medicine, so you can see the Published in New England Journal of Medicine from Walter Reed. You can see with the mirror condition, the pain drops to almost no pain. With the covered mirror and imagery, visual imagery, the pain actually goes up until they crossed over, and then the pain drops again with the mirror. It's been, and now it's widely used in clinics throughout the world. Now, it's surprising, curing pain in a phantom limb with a mirror is surprising enough. And as you said, there's a lot of variability. Only about half the patients are helped. And about half of them, the mirror does nothing. Typically, patients who see seen after a long time. These variables need to be studied. There's another disorder which I want to tell you about, speaking of mind and body, and Lakoff here has done more than anybody else to talk about links between mind and body. But here is a powerful example you see in the clinic. Ordinarily, if you think of pain as one thing, but there are, in fact, two kinds of pain. There's chronic pain and acute pain. Acute pain, you touch a kettle and you withdraw to prevent further tissue injury. Obvious adaptive value. Chronic pain is the opposite. You Immobilize the arm. You get a tiny metacarpal bone fracture, and your your finger becomes painful, immobilized. There's a reflex immobilization to prevent further injury to to the finger. And it gets swollen, and it gets inflamed, and it gets warm, and it gets red. All signs of inflammation. Swollen, warm, red, painful, and inflamed. And then the bone heals after two weeks. All the changes reverse. Inflammation, inflammation subsides, pain goes away, the finger starts moving again. That's normal, 99% of people. In about 1% or 2% of people, that does not happen. The injury heals, the bone heals in x-ray, but the pain persists with the vengeance. It continues to be immobilized, paralyzed. It gets swollen, it gets warm. Right? Not only that, it spreads to the entire hand. The entire hand gets warm, swollen, painful, and immobilized, paralyzed. Entire arm gets paralyzed, swollen, immobilized, from the, starting from the little metacouple bone type fracture. So what's going on here? I don't know. You still don't know. But one thing is the paralysis, I think, is partly due to what we call learned paralysis. Every time he t- attempted to move the finger, move the arm, the brain was sending, him, was sending him a signal, ouch, it's painful. Stop moving it. So there's a heavy link between the very attempt to move the hand and the excruciating pain. So the brain just gives up and says, stop moving your hand. So you get this pseudo paralysis arising from punishment. So we said, how do you cure this? Well, let's put a mirror here, of course, and and put the other hand there, and then send symmetrical command. He's going to get visual illusion that the paralyzed, swollen, painful hand is actually moving with impunity. He's not actually moving it. It's It's an optical twin that's moving. He's seeing the reflection of the normal hand moving. But will that unlearn the learned pain phenomenon? Well, This is a wild hunch, even by my standards. And we're setting up to do it. Fortunately, another group did it. Pelican and Marshall and Wall in, 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 uh, in England. And they, that shows you an example of RSD. They did a the similar experiment with the mirrors and found dramatic recovery. In fact, what's astonishing is when you put the mirror there, here's a guy for months, his arm has been swollen and paralyzed and inflamed and, and painful. He moves a normal hand, in a few minutes, the inflammation starts, and not only the pain, but the mobility returns, and the swelling starts subsiding, and the temperature starts falling. You can't fake a fallen temperature, right? So that convinced me that it was real. And then when I saw one of the authors was Patrick Wall, who's the world's leading expert on pain. And he's an expert on placebos as well. So his name was on the papers. So I figured this must be a real phenomenon. <laughs> since, then, since then, there have been about four or five control studies, double blind control studies, placebo control studies. Also, now it's the accepted first line of approach treating RSD in clinics around the world. And it's an extraordinary example to me of mind-body interaction, where a mirror is producing changes in vasculature, changes in sympathetic pain, changes in swelling, all of the, and temperature, and all of that, even, even online. It's also being used for stroke, by the way, now, mirror rehab, and also for neglect, which I won't go into now because of lack of time. Now just when I thought I'm done with phantom limbs, I came across another phenomenon. I started reading Rizzolatti's work on mirror neurons. Uh, I speculated on this, and uh, I jumped off my seat when I first heard the talk. Everybody here knows about mirror neurons, especially here in Berkeley. Uh, the, the, The neurons in the front of the brain, prefrontal cortex, roughly homologous to Broca's area, V5. These neurons normally are the garden variety motor command neurons which when a monkey or a person reaches out and grabs a peanut, the neuron fires, orchestrating that series of motor twitches required for grabbing the peanut. Now about 10% of the neurons Rugellari found will also fire when I watch George here reaching out and grabbing a peanut. So they've been quickly dubbed monkey-see, monkey-do neuron or mirror neurons. Okay? So they're sort of simulating, doing a virtual reality simulation of your impending action is the claim. Right? Now, there's also, there's also sensory neurons, that are equally interesting, discovered, discovered by Christian Kaiser in S2, the sensory cortex. Remember, I showed you that map of the sensory areas in the brain, skin. Okay, when you, when you touch my left hand, right somatosensory cortex, S1 and S2 cells are activated, and there's a map. And this has been known for a long time since Lord Adrian. It goes back 75, 100 years. Now, a subset of these neurons, about 10% of them, will react to my watching George's thumb being touched. Now, so this is very interesting, because we can call them empathy neurons, because the neuron is is effectively saying what's happening to George is similar to what would happen to you if your thumb were touched. So empathize with George. You know what it's like to feel his touch. Same thing with pain. If you go to the anterior cingulate, there are neurons sensitive to pain. If you poke my thumb with a needle, it goes to my anterior cingulate, and I say, ouch. But if you poke George's thumb with a needle, a subset of the same neurons fire, and and I, I can empathize with George. But here's an interesting question. Why don't I shout, shout ouch, when he's poked with a needle? The same neurons are firing. Why don't I withdraw my hand when, when I simply watch George's hand being poked? Right? A couple of possibilities. One possibility, obvious possibility, is I've got my normal skin sending a veto signal saying, don't worry, you're not being, actually being poked. Empathize with George by all means, but don't dissolve into him. <laughs> don't, don't, don't withdraw your hand suddenly because it's maladaptive. It'd be a waste of time. Right? So, so, so empathize with them. Know what it's like to be George in George's shoes right now. But don't withdraw your hand. That would be foolish. So this is, I looked at this, and I said, well, the obvious prediction is if I amputate my arm and look at George being poked, I should feel the pain in my phantom. Because the afferent signals have been have gone. There's no veto signal. Is that clear or obscure? Okay, so in, in the 100 years that fa- we've known about phantom limb, nobody has asked this question. that If you poke somebody with a needle while a phantom limb patient is watching, does he feel the poke in his phantom? The answer is yes. We've seen in three patients now, and they watch another patient being poked, they feel the pain in the phantom. Okay? So we call these empathy neurons or Gandhi neurons. <laughs> okay. Now, there's some debate about whether the mirror neurons are significant, whether they're important, whether they're the same as theory of other minds, uh, action understanding, action, production. All of this is just is it old fashioned psychology with new words to describe empathy and things like that. We won't go into that. This patient went home, and he had a smart idea. We we, we talked about this before he went home. He feels excruciating phantom pain in his phantom arm, cramps, phantom cramping pain. He can't do anything about it. We're getting ready to start him on the mirror protocol. Before that, he simply watched his wife's hand being massaged. And of course, he felt a phantom massage in his phantom hand, he claimed. This immediately relieved the phantom pain. This is not, unlike the mirror procedure, this has not been tested in cl- clinics, in a clinical setting, using placebo controls. But if it works, it would be a clear example of a practical application of the idea of mirror neurons, leaving aside all the arcane theoretical debates about how significant they are. Practically, in the clinic, to alleviate phantom pain. That guy doesn't care, you know, whether it's theory of the mind or what it is. You know, he, his pain goes away. Now, another prediction we made, this is kind of cute, actually, going back to the motor mirror neurons, There's a condition called OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. and One particular variation which is particularly troubling to the patient is a hand washing, ritual hand washing. You accidentally touch a doorknob, this minor contamination elicits acute anxiety, almost panic. The guys incessantly wash their hands to the point of erosion of the hand, fingers, and skin. And then we said, well, what if he simply watches another guy washing his hand? Sounds stupid. Some of my best experiments begin as jokes, by the way. So I said, what if he watches somebody else? There's an experiment done with Jalal, Balan Jalal, a student in my lab. So sure enough, in about two-thirds of the patients we've seen with OCD traits, hand-washing compulsions, they watch another person washing his hands. They get relief. And the interesting thing about this is it can't be response bias because they're surprised by it. That how the hell, why should him washing his hands produce relief in me? It doesn't make any sense. They express surprise. So I think we're on to something as a potential treatment for OCD. Because you could, you could have an app that shows you a, so as soon as you get the urge, you look at yourself washing your own hand. You don't have to actually go to the toilet and spend half an hour. Right? So another example of a clinical application for something like OCD. It's just a topic that I know very little about, by the way. I'd like to switch gears now and talk about phenomenon which we call synesthesia. Which was documented first by Francis Galton, nineteenth century first cousin of Charles Darwin. He noticed some otherwise normal people in the population, general population. He thought it was rare, one in thousand, one in five hundred. Now we know one in fifty people have synesthesia. So th- this condition is one where a person who is otherwise completely normal, whenever he sees a printed number on a, on a white sheet of paper, like five is red, six is blue, seven is green, eight is chartreuse, nine is indigo, and so on and so forth. And the color remains constant for any p- particular individuals over years stable over years. But it's different for different people. It's not the same color for different people. Although there are trends. We can get to that if you want. Now, since the discovery of synesthesia by Galton, there have been hundreds of case reports, but no attempt to understand what's going on in the brain or what causes it. And in fact, people brushed it aside. It's a classic example of an anomaly in science, a CUNY anomaly, which people brush under the carpet and say, it doesn't make any sense. What do you mean five is red, six is blue? It doesn't make any sense. Well, often anomalies can pave the way to new discovery and new, new, new areas of research. Uh, so we thought, well, why not, why not study these people? And the standard explanations of synesthesia, by the way, the one explanation is, these are just uh, this is crazy. Now, that's not an explanation. Even if it's true, let's put that aside for the time being. Can come back to it as a last resort. Second explanation is, they are high on drugs. <laughs> and, and sure enough, it's about seven times more common in Berkeley than at UCSD. But leaving that aside, the fact that drugs influence synesthesia is not evidence against synesthesia being a legitimate phenomenon. It makes it more interesting. Why would some drugs enhance this propensity to see numbers as colored? The third explanation is that just just childhood memories. They've been playing with refrigerator magnets, and five was red, and six was green, and seven was blue, and eight was yellow, and so on and so forth. This doesn't make any sense to me, because why does it run in families? Galton himself showed that synesthesia runs in families, and possibly in a Mendelian fashion. Inherited, right? What would so you have to say the same magnets are being passed down from generation to generation, which <laughs> didn't make much sense, but it's you have to keep in mind as a possibility. And then, if, if it's true if it's just magnets, why don't we all have synesthesia? Why only a subset? Right? So, That's obvious it. questions. The fourth possibility is more ingenious but a bit vague, along the lines that George and I have been thinking. I'm not saying you're vague, but I'm vague. Um, that is that they're, maybe they're being metaphorical when they say. Five is green, maybe it's like or say, F sharp is blue. It's like saying cheddar cheese is sharp. The cheese isn't sharp. You rub it on your skin, it's soft. You say, no, 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 it, it, its taste is sharp. But there's a circularity there. Why do you use a gustatory metaphor, a tactile metaphor, to describe a gustatory sensation? There's a whole area of research that this leads to, which we don't have time to go into. So, but this may be on the right track, as you can see. This is what, this is what I'm going to argue. So first of all, are they crazy? Well, we did a number of experiments to show that they're not, that they're a legitimate phenomenon. And in a subset of synesthetes, it turns out there are two kinds of synesthetes, the projectors and the associators. Projectors is a minority, maybe about 10 to 15 percent of and we stumbled on two of them, luckily, when we started, started doing research on synesthesia. The associators are more difficult to study. They constitute 80 to 90 percent of them. So let's talk about projectors. So we said, how do you know they're not making it up? Well, we designed this display. Well, you've got a synesthete who sees numbers as colored. So we show normal people this panel of fives. There's some scattered, some twos scattered among them. Can you find the twos? Yeah. One there, one there, one there. And they form a shape, either a square or a triangle or a square circle. And it takes ages. It takes 20, 30 seconds before you spot the upside down triangle. A synesthete looking at it sees it much faster. He says, oh, I see an upside down red triangle. If you're a projector synesthete. Now, if he's crazy, how come he's better than us? OK? This has been confirmed by Jamie Ward, by the way, in London, in a larger group of patients. This was an experiment done with, together with Ed Hubbard, who used to be a student here at Berkeley before he joined me as a graduate student. Now, also just phenomenology. I mean, you talk to these patients. For example, a patient is not patient. Subject, sorry about that. A I saw recently. who saw A as blue. And I said, do you see the blue in your mind's eye? Like when you think of Cinderella, you think of a pumpkin, or you think of a chariot, or do you literally see it blue? And she said, no, no, I actually see it blue. It's not like Cinderella and the pumpkin, because there I can think of Cinderella and her gown, Cinderella and mice, whereas here I can only think of blue. It's an irresistible urge to see it blue. And not only that, in my case, it spills out of the color, spills out of the letter. It forms a halo, a dusty halo around it. Why would that be? The first thing I did was simply put a uh, an amoeba around it, and the halo gets blocked, spread of the halo gets blocked by the amoeba. These kinds of phenom- phenomena you can't explain in terms of vague psychological associations. So just strongly it's a sensory in character. You can even put an illusory contour around the A, and it gets blocked by the illusory contour. And we'll get back to where that's happening in a minute. So what's happening in synesthesia? Where is it, what, what, what's going on? Remember, it runs in families. That's one clue. It's also, it also turns out synesthesia is seven or eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists other creative people than in the normal population. That's another piece of the puzzle. So you've got all these pieces of the puzzle. Why is it more more common among novels, poets, and artists? Why? We'll see in a minute. And uh, in the subset of synthesis whom we call projectors, we stumbled on. The the anatomy is straightforward. Ed Hubbard and I were looking at brain atlases. We saw that the area for numbers shown in the red discovered by Stanislaus Dehane and, uh, and uh, Tim Rickard in our lab, in our, center, in our department, shows where graphemes are represented, including numerals. And the p- green patch is Samir Zeki's V4, he's um, involved in processing color. We said, what's the likelihood of the most common type of synesthesia, number color synesthesia, and these two are right next to each other in the fusiform status of the brain. Well, we said it's very unlikely to be a coincidence. Maybe there is some accidental cross wiring between number and color. So every time they see a black and white number, it goes activates a number node and cross activates a color node spontaneously, so they see a particular color. Now, why would there be cross activation of this kind in these people? And remember, that the clue comes from the fact that it runs in families. Remember that in the fetus in early embryology and early, early childhood, perhaps, everything is connected to everything. That's an overstatement, but the tremendous redundancy of connections. And then these excess connections are pruned away by pruning genes to create the modular architecture that of the adult brain, including number area and color area. So if these pruning genes are mutated, this defective pruning, then some redundant connections are going to be left behind. For example, if, it's, if, it's, if, the, if the mutant pruning gene is selectively expressed by transcription factors in the fusiform gyrus alone, you get this quirky number color synesthesia. And what about the higher synesthetes, where it's not the, just the number that produces, visual appearance of the number that produces, the so-called associators, what about them? Well, we, we did a simple experiment on these people, and the projectors. We, said, we asked a very simple question, which had not been asked about synesthetes since the 100 years we've known about it, since Galton's time. Instead of showing them a 5, what do we show them a V, a Roman 5? Ro, instead of showing them an Arabic 6 or an Arabic 7, I should call them Indian, by the way. But instead of showing an Arabic number, if you show them a Roman five, what do they see? Do they see a color? The answer is I've never met a sinist who sees a color in a Roman number. So it's not the concept of the number that creates a color. It's the visual appearance, which fits the idea that the fusiform gyrus encodes the visual appearance, not the high-level concept of numerosity, ordinality, cardinality, and all that good stuff, which, which by the way, I think happens in the angular gyrus because it's been long known that the angular gyrus, the left angular gyrus is damaged, you get dyscalculous. If you ask him to add, multiply, subtract 17 from 21, he'll say, oh, it's 14. He'll glibly say it's 14 and assert that he knows it be knows it for certain But that's another whole is another whole lecture. Um, so I think in the low in the in the projector synesthetes the cross-wiring gene is expressed here, the cross-wiring gene. So you get number color synesthesia, here. In the associator synesthetes, it's expressed higher up so that the idea of sequence is mapped on to higher color areas in the brain in the color processing hierarchy. So if it's expressed higher up, I can show you a diagram later. In the vicinity of the angularitis, you get higher synesthetes or lower synesthetes, which would explain why some of these higher synesthetes also experience not only. Numbers is colored, but days of the week is colored. Monday is red. Tuesday is blue. Wednesday is charteuse. And months of the year is colored. Again, it seems completely utterly incomprehensible. What do, they all have, what do they all have in common? Months of the year, days of the week, and numbers. Sequence. So I think the angular gyrus is where the action is. And now there's some research using DT imaging by in our lab, and uh, she's visiting our lab. She's shown that, in fact, there's, if you do DT imaging, there's more white matter in the vicinity of the angular gyrus and associators and in the fusiform gyrus, in the projectors. But this is still very preliminary. I should add a note of warning. OK, here's another fun example how we can play games with these people. How many of you can read that? Raise your hand. Very tough. Now squint your eyes. George, you can't read it yet? Remove your glasses. OK. All right. Now, guess what happens when you show this to a projector synesthete? The projector synesthete says, well, I see a jumble of colors, but I don't know why, because they know I can't see any letters. And then they say, oh, wait a minute. I know why that's red. It's, a, it's an N. And it's an O. That's why it's blue. S E O. I see. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> OK, so they're seeing the colors being activated by these hidden numbers before they reach consciousness and register as graphemes sort of blind sight for numerals and synesthetes. So what I'm claiming is, in these individuals, those hidden numbers are activating the color area in the brain. Before that, and then they're evoking the appropriate, sorry, hidden, hidden numbers are evoking the number area in the brain, activating the number area, evoking the appropriate color, even before the message is sent higher up to be to recognized as a valid grapheme. So you're seeing the colors and using the colors to infer what the graphene. is. The most striking example of this I've seen is two uh, colorblind synesthes. Sounds like an oxymoron. This person could see a limited range of colors because of deficient cone pigments in the eye, limited range of colors in the external world. But when they saw numbers, they would see colors which you could never see in the external world. They call them charmingly refer to them as Martian colors. Right? And the reason, again, and we've seen two patients like this. The reason, again, is because the cone pigments are deficient so they can't see colored colors in the real world, or see only a limited range. When you saw a number, the number activates a number node, and cross-activates colored neurons, which, have ne- which can't experience those colors in the real world, because the retinal receptors don't exist. But it's hardwired for seeing, quote, unquote, Martian colors. Is that clear? This, again, eliminates any possibility of learning being the basis of synesthesia. How can you learn a color you've never seen? Another phenomenon Galton, the astute Galton noticed, was what he called number lines. When I ask any one of you to imagine numbers in front of you, one to ten, you'll roughly imagine crude, crudely going left to right, one, two, three, four. And it's very vague; it's nothing very clear. But in some individuals, Galton noticed, and again we find it's about one in fifty to one in hundred, we'll see a vivid three-dimensional layout of numbers in the visual field. There's a one is here, two is here, and it's convoluted; it's not straight line left to right. It's convoluted 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and often doubles back on itself like this. So 15 may be close to 2 instead of being close to 16 or 14 in, in, in Cartesian space. And this has been ignored for 100 years. And Ed Hubbard and I and David Bryan did some experiments to establish that the people, they were not faking it. We used the number distance effect. I don't have time to go into it. So they're not faking it, that the, the, the number line affects the reaction time to numbers. Since then, there have been mixed results on this phenomenon. But the question is, everybody agrees it's a valid phenomenon. The question is, why does it arise? Why would some people see numbers and imagine numbers like, I mean, again, it's a an anom- classic example of an anomaly in science. And people ignored it for that reason. Well, I don't know the answer to why they see it this way, unlike the grapheme color synesthesia, where I had a clear answer. But one, one reason, like one thing I can think of is, Arithmetic and numbers and mathematics is the recent invention in human evolution, maybe 5,000, 10,000 years old. And the brain can't invent a completely new algorithm from scratch to handle numbers, ordinality, sequence, and all of that. So what it does is it adopts a trick using pre-existing maps in the brain. Maps go back to Devonian times, you know, fish-like ancestors. Brain is full of maps. So you map on the idea concept of numerical sequence, ordinality and cardinality and quantity, onto a spatial map to create a graph If something goes awry with this remapping of this concept of sequence onto a spatial map, you get these peculiar number lines. Now, how do you test this idea? I have no idea. Okay, but it's an interesting idea nonetheless. Now, some of these people also have, I'm almost done. Some of these individuals, and we've studied a number of them. David Bryan has studied them in our lab, have what we call calendar lines. Here's a woman we, we studied recently. And when I ask any one of you to imagine a calendar in front of you, typically most people imagine a rectangular calendar, as, as a, like a real calendar, January, February, March, and then you know so on and so forth. These people—it's very vague. It's nothing very clear. It's in your mind's eye. These people see a very clearly laid out, three-dimensionally laid out calendar, always circular, never rectangular, and, and never in the coronal plane, but in the transverse plane, like a hula hoop going through their chest. With January, February, March, April, May. Current month always occupies the current ego ego of the calendar. You see this repeatedly in different subjects. And here's here's an interesting part what George would like. You can do interesting experiments on them, like what if you tilt their head like this? Does the calendar tilt? Answer is no, it stays like a water level where it is. But here's the best part. If you ask them to Rotate their head like this. What happens in the calendar? So the calendar is here like a hula hoop. Rotate their head like that to the right. What happens in the calendar? The calendar in this particular case remained attached to the head. Sorry, attached to the body. It's in sort of put it crudely body centered, not head centered. But the exciting thing is she noticed that the left side of the calendar became fuzzy when she rotated her head. Like a real physical calendar. Why the, why the hell would a mental calendar behave like a physical calendar? And she said, also, she organizes her life, her time and space, and her calendar. Using this calendar helps her organize her otherwise chaotic and meaningless life. And then she looks back, and she looks on the other side, the opposite happens. So, so she can inspect her, use, use this mental calendar to organize her, her, her daily activities and her future, project herself into the future, it's surely a vital part of what you call the self. And not only that, and here's something we're testing currently. If she does this, she has memories, episodic memories, Events that happen in January and February become fuzzy. And she has to look there to get, r- r- retrieve the memories. This is an undergraduate student who I, 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 I don't think she's read Lakoff's book. So I don't think she's making it up. But we don't know yet for sure, we're testing her. A lovely example of embodied cognition where neck muscles are gaining access to memories, episodic memories. Now, where, where is it happening? This is what we always do. We, so we look at a peculiar phenomenon, nail it down, show what's going on. show it's a real phenomenon, the patient's not making it up and try and figure out what's going on in the brain, and if possible, cure it if it requires, to be, requires curing. What's going on in the brain? Well, like I said the angular data must play a critical role in sequence. So I think it plays a critical role in calendars. This can be tested. But then what about the hippocampus? It's got place cells. It's got uh, two kinds of cells involved in spatial and temporal labeling of events. Right. And now it turns out, and we're looking at atlases, there are direct connections between the angular gyrus and the hippocampus, the inferior longitudinal fasciculus. And that's shown in the next slide. So I'm claiming that the human mental calendar, which we take for granted, we use for organizing our lives. And life will be completely meaningless. People usually attribute to the frontal structures. And the frontal structures are only involved in paying attention to specific regions of the calendar. Calendar itself is constructed by interactions between the left angular gyrus and the hippocampus. Okay, I'll just conclude there by saying that all of these problems which are tangentially related to the problem of self, how you construct a body image, how you feel anchored inside your body, embodied cognition, projecting yourself into the future, and, and creating a calendar around which your life revolves, the problems are considered intractable, but you can sort of begin to at least scratch the surface. Thank you.
1: Hi, um, my name is Eric. Um, so I have a question about synesthesia. Sure. Um, you mentioned that synesthesia runs in families, so yes. there's a genetic factor. Um, in your studies, um, did you notice that the same synesthesia, the color, um, color number synesthesia, is hereditary, or is it some kind of, like, um, is it's, it different? There's a
2: problem statistically, because the most common form is number color, or letter color, grapheme color. I think there is a tendency for the same form to be inherited, but it's not been. The only thing we know for sure is if you have one type of synesthesia, you're much more likely to have another unrelated type of synesthesia as well. Ooh. It supports my defective pruning theory. Okay. Because the same same transcription factors are expressed in two different regions in the same brain. Then you're going to get two unrelated types of synesthesia co-occurring more yeah. often than by chance.
1: Are these like functional areas that are sort of um, kind of like uh, the functions kind of fused together? Or?
2: Well, to, to give you an example, the uh, number-color synestheses are often the ones who have the calendar synesthesia. Mm and often the ones of tone color as well. They don't always have to occur together, but often do, much more often than by chance. Thank you. Sure. I didn't mention about creativity, but I can get to that later.
3: Hi, thanks for a great talk. Uh, I wanted to say something, hear a little more about the metaphorical use or the anthropomorphism involved in talking about the neurons in the brain. When you say that an area that normally corresponds to an to an amputated limb or something, and you say it's starved for
2: yeah, stimulation
3: or it's or it's hungry for yeah. something like that. Sure. So, well, so what is that describing? Why would an unstimulated area in the brain care whether or not it was stimulated or not? So, so in what sense is there a causal explanation for saying rather the cross wiring sounds a little more plausible than saying, oh, it's hungry, or it's starved, or or, stimulation
2: wants to move around? I was just being loose with the terminology. (laughs) Sorry. It's a legitimate question.
0: I forget the name of that uh, syndrome where somebody wants to have an amputation.
2: Xenomelia.
0: Xenomelia? Yeah. Great. Um, Just the question of ethics in that regard,
2: but that, that's why it's not done yet. Well, but
3: um, do we mutilate somebody because their heart wants to look differently? That's the kind of issue that has come up, and have you seen some advances in figuring that ethical question out?
2: I mean, I'm interested in those issues, but it doesn't come up in our case because gotcha. the patient, no, no surgeon here will do the amputation. Got it. So they have to go, go as I said, across the border again. At least it in the U.S. At least in the U.S., yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Hi. Do you have any thoughts of what is going on in schizophrenia, for example, There's some broke of, of, the self is broken or something I don't know. Maybe do you have some thoughts about it? I've thought about it, but no, not enough to say anything in no. <laughs> Thank
3: you. Uh, these unexplained thought forms, like uh, synesthesia, are they evidence or maybe a feeling of uh, immortality of the soul?
2: Of, uh, <laughs> um, it's a question for George. Um, quick question: You didn't want to touch
1: on it in this talk, but just a brief um, background from you on the the ancient civilizations of you know India, the the whole uh, you know Vedic Tantra uh, Agama uh, literature. How do, you, how do you connect it yourself with some of the phenomena that you've talked about today?
2: Well, there's the metaphysical issues that have been dealt with in the Vedic literature and Upanishads and in Hebrew literature and in Christian literature, which I haven't touched on because I don't have any expertise in that. But I'm very interested in it, obviously. On the other hand, the self is something that I can come to grips with, at least partially. So I focus my attention on that. But um, I like Schrodinger's quotation from the Upanishads where he says that the individual selves, human beings, are like windows which let the light pass through. And there's a central light illuminating the building from inside, which is called Brahman or universal spirit or consciousness or whatever. When an individual dies, the window shuts, but the universal spirit continues shining through other windows. It's a comforting thought, but I haven't thought, I don't have any deep thoughts about it. Thank Thank you. It's a good question, though. I wondered if you'd done any research on photophobia, uh, people feeling pain with regards to color. I I have a couple of students who have that. We haven't haven't studied it. It's a fascinating question. But I I can't tell you anything about it. Like whether pain's... Okay. Thanks.
0: Hi. You just briefly mentioned that you hadn't explored creativity and synesthesia. And I'm just wondering about work done on, I know with music, different composers who are very um, skilled who have synesthesia Yeah, they, different composers see different colors like Scriabin and Messiaen right. these composers have you, is, has there been any research on like, where that happens or what's the effect that's going on in the brain and why they yeah. each see different colors with sound and all of that but we
2: can't get that specific but I do have a theory about why synesthesia is so, so much more common among artists poets and novelists and why it promotes uh, artistic talent and the reason is, I think, that if the same gene that's expressed selectively in fusiform gyrus or in angular gyrus, producing this quirky associations of synesthesia, if it's expressed throughout the brain, there's going to be greater cross-connectivity throughout the brain. And if ideas and concepts are also in far-flung regions of the brain, like when you say this is the east and Juliet is the sun, you say Juliet is the sun. Does that mean she's a glowing ball of fire? You don't say that. You say she's warm. She's nurturing. She's radiant like the sun. She rises in bed like the sun rises in the east. She's the center of my solar system, like the sun is the center of the solar system. You can make, on, make as many associations as you want. And these people have excess connections connecting far flung brain regions, have a greater propensity to link seemingly unrelated ideas. And this is what we call artistic creativity or, or, or facility with metaphor. In fact, you could even think of, to put it in phrenological terms, each node has a penumbra of meanings, like Juliet or the sun has a penumbra of meanings associated with it. And because of the excess connections, the penumbras are bigger in the synesthetes. There's greater zones of overlap between two seemingly unrelated ideas, so it makes them more creative. Hence the higher incidence of, and hence, by the way, the higher prevalence, higher prevalence of synesthesia is gene. Why would 1 in 50 people have this quirky ability of linking 5 and red? Because there's a hidden agenda, because the gene makes some outliers in the population more creative and imaginative in general. And the penalty you pay for that is there's a minority who sees 5 as red, but it doesn't do, do them any harm. Otherwise, there would be no selection pressure to maintain this gene in the population. It would have drifted away a long time ago. Thank you. Thank you. But regarding the specific details of colors and all that, we haven't studied that. It's a good question.
0: On the same subject of creativity, I'm coming from linguistics like uh, literature, and I'm trying to um, bring um, new findings of neurolinguistics into how the brain acts and reacts in writing and and I know a little bit about words that has to do with with uh, visual and kinesthetic and auditorial, but I wonder if there's something that is written um, on the subject of the self saying itself in words or not saying, you know yeah. do you did you write anything about it because you said you There not is a literature
2: gonna... dealing with that but I'm not I'm not the right person to ask but it's a, good, it's a good, good question. There is a literature pertaining to that, which I'm not, not, I can't think of it offhand. But. Okay, because
0: uh, the last uh, dot there that you said you're not going to discuss is self-awareness. And I wonder if there's some passages there in terms of self-awareness and creativity. No.
2: Yeah. Okay. Not that I know of. <laughs> I had a question
3: regarding the phantom limb. Did you try using different mirrors, like concave and convex mirrors, and seeing what kind of effect it would have in removing the pain? Or was it just. The, so, the types of mirrors that you use in the phantom oh, experiment. See, yes. yes so the only thing you... we've
2: seen is if you use a magnifying mirror, yes. the phantom looks bigger, the pain also gets amplified momentarily, fortunately.
3: So, there is a direct correlation in terms of. Yeah. Okay.
2: It's not been studied carefully, but. Okay. It appears to be, yeah. Good question. Thank you. So I had a question about the case of Martian colors and correlation with synesthesia. So is there a difference between people who develop colorblindness later in
0: life due to regular degeneration or those who are colorblind from birth, so congenital?
2: We only study the ones who are from birth. Okay, all right, thanks. Two of them, but that's a good question.
1: Um, I have a question about synesthesia. Um, you seem to argue in your talk that uh, synesthesia is more inborn, not learned. But
2: it, it seems well, that, 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 okay. Or no? It, it doesn't make any sense. that Synesthesia is inborn. Hmm. You don't learn. You're not born with the letters of the alphabet and numbers. Right. That's what, 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 I, what, 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 what I meant to say was the propensity hmm. to link arbitrary shapes, like numbers with colors, is inborn, in some people. But, not that the, the phenomenon of synesthesia is inborn.
1: But why would it be always letters and numbers, and why is always like le- letters or numbers? Because inherited? there's
2: a tendency for that region of the fusiform represent arbitrary shapes. And there are rare cases of synesthes with faces showing colors. And faces are also in the fusiform diarist, as uh, Charlie here has shown many years ago, very elegantly. All right, thank you. Hi, thanks for being here. Sure. Two short questions. One is, you mentioned something about neck muscles and memory at the very end of your talk, and and I I, I missed it. What I meant to say was that here's a person with episodic memories who claims, and we're now testing this rigorously by measuring it repeatedly after a few weeks or a few months, giving her some striking episodes and not telling her about it. But you go by what she's saying. You see, if she looks to the right, the portion of the, of, the, of the calendar, which is on the left, becomes fuzzy, as it would if you were a real calendar. She says the memories of those events become, become fuzzy, too, and, and, uh, and hard to dredge up into consciousness, until she turns her head and looks directly at the calendar. So it's helping her. So that's what I meant with the neck muscles gating the access to episodic memories. That's the extreme version of the hypothesis. Okay. Also, what do you think is happening when someone sees someone getting massaged across the room? And let's not use the like anomalous case. Let's just say anybody. They see somebody getting massaged and... Uh, can they start feeling a little bit better? Or is, I know you haven't studied that, but well, what, like what do you think is It seems happening? to me that because of your afference, you know that you're not being massaged, and that kind of silences it. So I, I doubt very much you'd experience in, in, in any benefit from that. But there are a group of people who are congenitally who congenitally uh, have this phenomenon of hyperempathy. It's claimed by Sarah Blakemore. I haven't seen a subject myself, but I trust her judgment. And so what you're saying is true, may be true of a minority of the population, a tiny percent of the population. But in the case of phantom limbs, the majority of the phantom limb patients experience this, hyperempathy syndrome, because of the deafferentation. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I have a question about the soul. Okay. <laughs> uh,
3: largely because of you, I got invited to the Gifford Lectures after UK it did. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, these are the Gifford Lectures on Natural Theology. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I couldn't resist putting in stuff on the soul. So I said, look, if the soul has to not to, to exist after you die and, you know, goes to heaven, etc., cetera, or, or the other place, then it has to, the question is, it has to not have anything that is required by a body. So the question is, what is required by a body? And if it's required by a body, the soul can't have it. So you can study the properties of the soul that way. So, can the soul see? No. Can't, can't see, doesn't have a visual cortex, etc. Uh, can the soul hear? Sorry, doesn't have the hearing apparatus for that. Uh, can the soul uh, feel, touch? No. Doesn't have the appropriate part of the cortex, etc. Uh, and you go through this list. Can the soul remember? Doesn't have the what is required for memory for that. Uh, and so you go through that. And the next question is, does the soul have uh, a personality or your personality? So the question is, does personality depend upon the brain in any way? And this is a question I asked Nina, and uh, who knows much better than I do. And, and she pointed out that the Phineas Gage phenomenon... Uh, you know, would say that uh, oh, it's lost control. It doesn't have inhibition, etc. You know, sort of like Donald Trump, or who you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, so you, that, that's certainly a, one kind of personality change. But also, there could be larger brain injuries that would produce you know, sort of positive changes of all sort. And if that's the case, then the soul would not have a fixed personality, and therefore not your personality. So, in what case is it your soul?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, so, the, but the question about personality is something I really wanted to ask you about, if you've thought about that at all.
2: Short answer is no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but we should, we should chat at length and okay. develop the idea yeah. further. Okay, good. Um, what's it like
3: for a man like you to be living in what I call Deep South California?
2: Uh, it's a strange culture down there that we have no understanding of up here. No, I mean you've lived down there for how many years? 25, 30 years. 25 uh, years, yeah. And it's, it's very surreal. Ah. No. <laughs> you have a favorite example? <laughs> Actually, I have to think about that.